Okay, good evening. <clears throat> okay, the question uh, that I had was, what is the difference between the writing of the law and the heart in Romans 2.15 and Hebrews 8.10? What is the difference between the writing of the law on the heart in Romans 2.15 and Hebrews 8.10? We'll start in Romans <clears throat> Romans chapter 2. And I'll just read the verse and then we'll excuse me, make a couple of comments. Uh, start at verse 14. For when the Gentiles, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these although not having the law are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing themselves, excusing them. And maybe I'll just read uh, Hebrews 8.10 just to, so we can compare. <coughs> uh, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So just initially, topically, just reading through that real quick, you, you would almost think they're the same thing. Um, the word is the exact same law. And literally they're referring to Torah, I guess the Greek translates as Torah, a law. Uh, but context would prove otherwise. <clears throat> the first section, uh, the last section of chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18 through uh, 32, uh, that section in my Bible is entitled God's Wrath on the Unright Unrighteous. And you read about um, all these individuals and uh, the things that they do. Um, gave up God, don't want to think about him, given to Violence, And interestingly enough, right in between inventors of evil things and undiscerning is disobedient to parents. I just thought that was interesting. And that's considered just as vile as any of these other things. Um, so we have this section that talks about lawless, unrighteous people. Then chapter 2, 1 through 16, you see God's righteous judgment. He's going to judge those. And his judgment is right. His judgment is just. Verse 2 in chapter 2 says... The judgment of God is according to truth. In verse 5, it says the righteous judgment of God. So God's judgment is right. And then verse 15, it says, Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. These people are making decisions, accusing one uh, or excusing another or themselves, amongst themselves. Who are these people? People without the law. We see that for the Gentiles who do not have the law, but how do they get this moral idea of right and wrong? Well, it's not a law, it's a moral sense, I would submit, um, because they don't have the law. But the end of chapter 2, verse 17 through 29, talks about the Jews and says, you are called a Jew and rest on the law. You make your boast on God. That's in verse 17. Um, verse 23, you who make your boast in the law. So if we take that, those three sections... Chapter 1, 18 through 32, chapter 2, 1 through 16, and then chapter 2, 17 through 29. We see three different sections. One group, the Jews have the law. And then we see the Gentiles, they do not have the law. And among this group, there's a group that doesn't have the law, but they make a moral judgment. So how do they get that judgment? Well, they have a moral sense. In, innate to every human, there is a sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? Well, you can, you can even look at children. You know, I've seen my kids do it all the time. 
one boy will take a toy from another child and say, hey, give that back. No, that's not fair. Where do they get that sense of right and wrong and fair, what's fair and what's not fair? There is something in us that feels the need to be vindicated when injustice is done to us. And I think that's the Lord put that there. Because one day when we hear the gospel, we understand, wow, he has vindicated us. Our conscience is clean. Our sin has been removed. He has vindicated us. He has removed us from this world of sin and brought us and redeemed us back to him. That idea is innate to every human, at least not at the sense of a savior, but at least for yourself. Hey, I need to be taken care of. There is right and wrong, and it needs to be dealt with. When there's a wrong, it needs to be dealt with. So where do they get this idea? <clears throat> I, would, I would just submit that they see others doing it. And where does that come from? From the moral law. The Ten Commandments were given to the Jews, and they were supposed to separate themselves, and they separated these people from all others. They lived a certain way. Just going through Deuteronomy recently, and we just covered some of it. Mike mentioned a few things this morning. Um, Saul, he was supposed to destroy the Amalekites. Um, Amalekites, uh, some of the other groups, they would, they had these uh, in the Valley of Hinnom, I believe, which literally means hell. At nighttime, they would have these idols burning, and they had little hands like this, and they would put babies there. I mean, as a father of four, I can't imagine placing my child to, to a god. I, I can't, I can't see that. But people did this at that time. These people were just utterly despicable, and the Lord said, "You need to destroy this. You will remove this because I don't want that to influence you." And you become like them. There was a difference. They were meant to be set apart. So this law here, I would submit, is talking about the moral law. God's law. The Ten Commandments. And it makes this comparison in those three sections. Romans chapter 1 and then the two parts in chapter uh, 2. And I think I would submit that verse 17 through 29 is what clarifies that this is the moral law. Because it says, you Jews who have the law. And it talks about the Gentiles that do not have the law. And there we go. There's your comparison. So I would submit that that's the moral law, uh, and we have these legal terms, accusing and excusing. Where are they getting this legal sense um, of right and wrong? There's innate, it's innate to men to take care of themselves, but not according to God's right law. Verse 2, the judgment of God is according to truth. And verse 5, the righteous judgment of God. These are men making decisions based on their own understanding of what is right and wrong, and we see what that leads to given the latest Supreme Court decision, and so on and so on, moral decay in our society. So I would, again, I would submit that is moral law. Then we go to Hebrews chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 10. Here he says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I'll put my laws in their mind, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, First thing we read in the verse is, this is the covenant I will make with them in those days. Well, it implies there's something previous. And if you go further back in chapter 8, uh, verse 7, uh, just a few verses up, it says, for that first covenant had been, if, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. There was a problem. There was an initial covenant. covenant. <laughs> Sorry. What is that? Uh, chapter 9, verse 1. For indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. We're talking about tabernacle, sacrifice, um, the system that God put in place for man to be reconciled as and when he sinned. Sacrifice, the system that they followed throughout um, their journey into uh, the land of Canaan and taking possession of it. That's the first covenant. But it's saying if the first covenant had been faultless, there was a problem. It didn't fully answer 
the question. It didn't fully answer the problem. <clears throat> oh, where's the verse? Verse 15 of chapter 9. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So the first covenant, you sin, you bring your sacrifice, and it's covered. But there wasn't a redemption. It hasn't been erased yet. You'll never read that. It hasn't been erased yet. When Christ comes... As far as the east is from the west, our sins are removed. Our consciences are clean. Listen to verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ... Let's start at 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's the difference. <clears throat> now our consciences are clean, but there's something new here too. In the question, it says, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, they shall be my people. It sounds similar, but there's a difference. John 14, 23, I think makes the, the clarifying difference. I'll read that real quick. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and anyone, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is the difference now. The Savior, when we accept him, he comes and lives in us. There's an indwelt spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Father. We have the Son. We have everything. It's complete now. We have a clean conscience. It's all been removed. So this law is the law of the second covenant. Christ, the redeeming lamb, the lamb of God. The first law only pointed really to this law. Uh, the second covenant, the first one was the moral law. And it showed man that no matter what you do, you still fail. You still fail. You cannot, uh, um, what's his name? Kirk Cameron. He is always gives that example of the, the chain with ten links. Have you ever broken any one of these laws? Well, you will fall. <clears throat> it's a good example. Uh, it's impossible to keep that moral law in and of ourselves. But then Christ comes with the new covenant, abolishes the old now we have a clean conscience. Now we are able to because we have the Holy Spirit that helps us to live this life that we're called to live, to be holy because he is holy. So there's, that's what I would submit as the difference. The, in Romans 2, we have the moral law, which is written in the hearts of men. Not written in the hearts of men. There's a moral sense that is written in the hearts of men, which they ultimately get from the moral law. And in Hebrews 8, we have the new covenant law. Are there any... Clarifications, questions? If not, we'll move to Jamal. Uh, thank you, Sam. That was actually very good. Um, my question is, how does baptism save us, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21? So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, and see what we're looking at here. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says, 
There is also an type, an antitype, I'm sorry. There's also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience to our God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the, 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 the questionnaire is asking, how does baptism, this antitype, save us? So we have to take a look at this verse and what does it mean that baptism, this antitype of baptism, saves us? Well, right off the bat, we have to, I guess, declare what it, it is not saying, okay? Uh, we may not fully understand the verse at this moment, but we have a lot of verses in the New Testament that declare to us how is one to be saved. It is through faith, right? Uh, there, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. So that, that is abundantly clear in the New Testament. It's abundantly clear in the New Testament and in the Scriptures, right? Uh, I believe somewhere over, 100, over 150 verses speak about salvation through faith, okay? So when we then understand that, we then look at this verse and say, what does it mean? What does it mean that, the, that there is also a type or a, a symbol of which now saves us called baptism? Um, and for that, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke to begin to answer the question. The Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 12. Gospel Luke chapter 12, and I, I'm in the wrong gospel, that's why I'm not seeing the verse. In uh, verse number 50, the Lord Jesus is speaking here, it says, But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how distressed I am till I, it is accomplished. Now, what do you think he's referring to there? He's referring to his death. Right? So now we begin to see a principle here that the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to his death on the cross as a baptism. Okay? So now let's go back to 1 Peter. I'm sorry. 1 Peter chapter 1. Chapter 3. <coughs> Excuse me. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says, this is also the type, right? There's also a type, a, an antitype, I'm sorry, a symbol, which now saves, which is baptism. It says, not, the, not of, the, of the washing of the filth, the removal of dirt, that of the ceremonial washing of the Jews. That's what it's referring to. It's not, it's not what, what the Jews did every single morning. The priests would wash, ceremonially wash themselves every single morning. But it's that of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I'm, referring, what I'm implying here is that this symbol which saves is the baptism of Jesus Christ on the cross, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, where do we see that New Testament? Well, we see it in many places, right? Galatians 2.20, we read it in last Wednesday night or two Wednesday nights ago. It says, for I am crucified with Christ. There is his death. Romans 6, 4 talks about how we have been buried. And then it also talks about how we've been raised again. Right? So we see that the death of Christ, 
burial, resurrection, is the baptism of Christ. Now, why do we consider that a baptism um, would be a good question. Well, the answer for that is actually found in the previous verse when it talks about the ark of Noah. Right? And it speaks how the ark of Noah safely transported eight souls through the waters. Now, the baptism, which you're talking about, we're not talking about water baptism. We're talking about the, the, the water baptism of the judgment of God. See, as that ark floated upon the water, there was water beneath it and water pouring on top of it. And God kept that ark safe. And even though God's judgment was being poured upon all of humanity, those eight souls were saved through the judgment of God. So you and I, through we, we align ourselves or, or, or we align ourselves with the death of Christ, the burial of, of Jesus Christ, and his resurrection, the baptism of Jesus Christ, we through him have the answer of what of a good and clear conscience through his resurrection. I hope, I hope that that's making a little more sense. Uh, uh, um, William McDonald put it this way. Let me, let me just read it. So uh, he's, he's very clear on this point. He says, one, he says, when Christ was baptized unto death for me on the Calvary, on, on Calvary, that's, that's the first step. Second step, it says, when I trust in him as Lord and Savior, I am spiritually united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection through the knowledge of his uh, of his risen of his rising, my request for a clear conscience is answered. Right, the fact that he rose again, we know that God the Father accepted that offering, accepted that sacrifice, and therefore we can stand before God justified, having a clear conscience before God. And then, lastly, we do have the practice of baptism, don't we? Referred to there in Romans chapter six, verse four, in which we symbolize what has internally happened, right? But that's not concerning. That that does not uh, come into factor concerning salvation, right? That is a that is an act of obedience to God. God, we're standing before God and before all witnesses, saying that I have been I have died with Christ and I rise again with Him. I am redeemed and I have a clear conscience before God, right? That has nothing to do with salvation before him. I hope that's clear. Right. Is, there, is there any questions or, or clarifications by the, by the brothers in the meeting concerning this verse? That's right. That's correct. That's correct. And I'll give you a verse just to kind of add to what he's saying. Uh, John 5.24, the Lord says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him whom he sent has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but have passed from death into life. Right? Right? The, the idea that we are now not going to go through the judgment, but we have been brought out of the judgment from death, Unto life, we shall not go into judgment. 
Any other comments? That's right. It's, a, it's an external expression of an internal truth. Does that make sense? It's an external expression of what has happened inside. That's what baptism is. It's not, it does not save. Uh, it, it won't save, right? So that, that, that I want to be abundantly clear on, right? Because there are sects in this world or in this country that believe that you have to believe in Jesus Christ and you have to be baptized. And if you're not baptized... There is no salvation. That is absolutely not true. If that were true, could Jesus Christ hang on the cross and say, it is finished? When he said it is finished, the work completely, it was absolutely finished. It required nothing else. It required nothing else on, on our behalf, on our part. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's all, it's all his work, right? In fact, it, it ties into what Brother Sam was saying, right? It's, it's that new covenant, right? The, the, the law stood outside of man, and man could not keep it. Now, the new covenant, the second covenant, is one in which the law is now being inscribed, being written in our hearts with the power, with the Holy Spirit, with the power to, to accomplish it, with the power to, to be able to fulfill it. And the, and the idea of standing before God with a, a clear conscience, right? The, our, it says our sins and our, our worldly mercy and their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deed I will remember no more, right? Stand before God in good, clear conscience. Thank you. Anything else? All right. At this time, it's yes, Brother Pete. I'm sorry. That's right. That's right. Correct. Amen.
Correct. Correct. The, the, the physical act of baptism is nothing but an external expression. Right. I hope that's abundantly clear. Any last comments? That's correct. That's correct. Jesus the cross died and went to paradise, right? There was no sprinkling of water, no nothing. It was he believed and was redeemed. All right. Now our brother Chris. Right. My question is a two-part question, and it says, are people still demon-possessed today? And if so, can they be cured if they are? And there's no scripture reference to associate with that question. Um, The first part of it, I think we can all say emphatically, yes, people are still demon-possessed. We don't typically see so much of that in our society, and I'll get to that part of it in, in part two of the question, but... Um, there are places in this world where there are large groups of people that are demon-possessed and there's substantial demon activity. Um, To get to part two, can they be cured of it if they are? Well, I have two verses that I want to talk about that we see um, in the Scripture demons being cast out or we see just uh, people in general approaching demons and how they respond to it. So the first one I looked at was in Matthew 8:28, and it's probably very common to most of us, it's uh, when Jesus approaches the two men, and they immediately um, they immediately recognize Jesus, and they ask to be cast into swine so that they can then run off a cliff and die. So the point I wanted to make in this was they immediately recognize Jesus. Uh, one other scripture that came to my mind was Acts 19 and verse 15. Uh, well, Acts 19, 13 to 17, you have a, pic, you have a story of some Jews um, that are attempting to cast out demons. Um, I think if you, if you look through that story, very, it's very clear that they're not born again. They don't know the Lord, and it's probably a, a financial reason that they're trying to cast out demons. Um, and something to support that idea is that they're casting out demons by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. My thinking is if I'm empowered by the Lord to be casting out demons, it's not going to be by somebody else's preaching. It's going to be by Jesus Christ and what he's doing in me. Um, But you clearly see in the demons' response that they respond. They said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? So they didn't recognize these people. And then you see they actually went on to physically harm those Jews that were doing the work. So between the two stories, the point that I'm trying to make is the demons very clearly recognize these people. Why? And I would, I would make the point that they see the Spirit of God indwelt in those. Obviously, Jesus was um, indwelt with the Spirit, Paul as well. Um, and we understand from Scripture the moment that we, we come to know the Lord as Savior, we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, at that point the demon would have no control over the believer. So to answer part two of the question, it says, can they be cured? Yeah, well, my, the simple answer to me would be become born again, and then demons have no authority over you. Uh, any comments or questions on that? Well, 
Okay. And it seems like everything that I've looked into in teaching everybody, I, I listened to a, a, a series that Larry Price did six years ago here, and one of the points that was made was it's obviously not something to be played with. This is a serious matter, um, and it's not something that we should be looking for because of, it, it opens up some doors to danger. But at the same time, if the Lord is working in your heart to be dealing with those individuals, He's going to prepare you. The Spirit's going to be working through you um, to deal with those people. Yeah, and, and the question, what does it look like? I, I, I would imagine, um, not having been around it all that much, if ever, there's probably all sorts of different outpourings of the dwelling of the demons within the people. I would imagine it's probably not the same with anybody. Um, but it seems like I, I was doing some uh, some reading online, and there were some particularly ER nurses that continually had demon-possessed or what they thought were demon-possessed people that kept coming through the emergency rooms. Um, and they, they all were very violent. They were strong. They were fighting them. They had to be um, restrained. In some instances, they had to pull out pepper spray, and the police had to deal with them before the nurses could even... Um, approach a subject but the interesting thing which each one of those stories that I read online was as soon as the demon possessed person was dealing with the nurse that was clearly born again based on the story immediately they recognized are you a Christian? It was the first question that they asked them and I think one instance they said please pray for me. One instance the person was struggling even harder to get away because of uh, because of the spirit within the, the nurse that was dealing with them but um yeah, it's not something to be played with. It's not something we should open ourselves up to. We're we're called as believers to put on the armor of God and to walk with the Lord. And, you know, getting into that realm and playing with it and seeing what's there would be the complete opposite of the call that we have from the Lord, right? It seems like those medications are dealing with the physical realm of the human body, right? Demon possession, to me, as I understand it, is complete control over the whole body. It's not just physical. It's body, soul, and, and mind. So it's the whole thing. And um, the medications don't work, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I would say even in this country, in the past we haven't seen that much of it, and I would say that's because yeah, historically the percentage of believers in this country was a lot more than other countries. But, you know, with the school shootings and things that we see, how, how else can we explain an 11-year-old, 12-year-old kid that's willing just to kill anybody and everybody and have no remorse about it? Right, right. Yeah. Right, and there are avenues that can open us up to demon activity. Again, I, I would say that to the believer, the Holy Spirit's going to protect you from that. But you know, drugs and, and various things can open you up even more so than um, other things. So. Bottom line is, as the word says, greater is he that is in me than is in the world. So that's where we got to go with that. Any other questions or comments on this? I think, Brian, you're next. So I found the other question answer, guys. It was me. (laughs) So the question reads, Since there's a book of life, is there a book of the dead? Now, um, the book of life, at least the term the book of life, um, I would point to Revelation uh, 20. But as far as the book of the dead, now, if any brother would like to correct me, I don't read of any particularly book of the dead. There's many books, a book of memorable deeds and Esther, and, and there's the book of God's, Uh, Let's read it here. Revelation 20, um, verse 12. It says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. Another book was open, and this is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. So there are books where God is recording everything that happens in life. You know, um, in social media, you know, a lot of people capture what they do in life, and they display it you know, out for everybody to see. And a lot of it's pretty shameful, but there's going to come a day where, you know, everybody 
that's not written, their name's not written in the book of life, is going to be judged out of books and the deeds that they've done. And it's not going to be something that they're going to boast from. And, um, but as far as those books, I don't see them named the book of dead. Um, but they are books of, I guess, recorded deeds in life for everybody who's ever lived. So is there any clarification or correction on that? Mm-hmm. Yes, Pete. Sure. Yeah, it could be a metaphor, too, in the sense of that's the way that we would understand, you know, because obviously God's eternal to, you know, he knows already ahead of time. Um, Moses also talks about blotting his name out of the book. It's, I don't think that's a re- direct reference. That was the last question we did a couple of weeks ago to the book of life. So what book is he talking about? I mean, you can talk about maybe there's there's a, a book of who's alive, but I can't say that with confidence. So, all right. So with that, we'll close this meeting, and uh, maybe once again, some brother would feel led to close this meeting in order of prayer.